Good evening. My name is Sergio Verdu. Uh, on behalf of the uh, Public Lectures Committee, I welcome everyone to uh, the lecture tonight. This is the Stafford Little uh, Lecture. This is one of five university-wide endowed lectures. It was founded in 1899 with a gift from Stafford uh, Little of the class of 1844. And previous lectures in this series have included Presidents Grover Cleveland, Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, also Albert Einstein. It's really a great pleasure to introduce uh, this evening's uh, lecture, Professor Ariel Dorfman. Professor Dorfman is a very well-known uh, novelist, playwright, uh, and human rights uh, activist. Uh, he currently holds the uh, Walter Hines Page Chair of Literature and Latin American Studies at Duke, Duke University. Shortly after his birth, uh, uh, Professor Dorfman uh, moved to New York uh, with his family, where he grew up until he was 12. And then uh, he settled in Chile. He was in the faculty of the University of Chile until he was uh, forced into exile following Pinochet's September 11, 1973 coup. Equally masterful in Spanish and English, and Professor Dorfman has written powerful fiction, often dealing with the horrors of tyranny and the trials of exile. His plays and novels, among them How to Read Donald Duck, Widows, Nanny and the Iceberg, uh, have been translated into more than 30 languages. And uh, his play Death and the Maiden was uh, brought by Roman Polanski to the, uh, to the screen in a film that starred Sigourney Weaver and Ben Kingsley. Uh, Professor Dorfman recently uh, wrote a novel, which was the first novel uh, published in this country simultaneously, actually written simultaneously in both uh, English and Spanish. Uh, that was Blake's Therapy, Therapia. And uh, his latest poem is entitled Community.com. So let us warmly welcome Professor Ariel Toffman. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, for being here tonight. And uh, just before I start, I, I when you say before you start, it's as if you haven't even started, but... Uh, I just wanted to say that, that I am, I am uh, joined to Princeton by uh, a slight family relationship. When my father uh, ran away from the, uh, the generals in Argentina, I mean, you know, it's sort of like a family custom, uh, he came to the United States, and in 1946, he was a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies here. And, he, of course, he would tell me about this, 1945, 46, before we had come... Uh, and this was a very, very significant place. He would, he would turn into sort of a mythical landscape. I have been here before, but uh, my father, who's 95 years old, still lives in Argentina, would be very glad to know that I have been here in this hall with you, giving this lecture, and being honored by you and by your presence. And thank you so much for, for being here tonight. And I would also like to thank the President for having 
taken from her time to do this. And Sergio Verdu and everybody else, Dorothy, thank you so much for the work you did to bring me here. Uh, this will be in English. And afterwards, there can be a, a, a question and answer session if we have the time and the inclination. But uh, the title is, Who are the Real Barbarians? It's sort of something that is in the air at the moment, I suppose. But we'll talk from a Latin American perspective. Now, when Christopher Columbus, on his first voyage of discovery, sighted a range of hills alive with silver along the coast of what would in the far future be known as the Dominican Republic, he believed, or so the legend goes, that his dreams of unending riches had finally come true. Now, Columbus was in the habit of baptizing everything he saw, so he proceeded on the 11th day of January of 1493 to give to the largest mount glinting phantasmagorically under the sun the Spanish word for silver. He called it plata, Puerto Plata. Although in fact he continued past those hills without setting foot on them, their present-day inhabitants ensure anyone who cares to listen that the Admiral Colon did indeed land and upon seeing the white, shiny leaves of the ilam, ilam trees turning over with the breeze, winking with sunlight, he morosely understood the illusion under which he had been laboring. That disappointment of Columbus, as recounted in tales handed down by generation upon generation of Dominicans, may be apocryphal. But the story originates in a core of truths. The truth of the trees that once covered an entire island, no longer, the truth of the insatiable Spanish quest for wealth in the lands that were soon to be called the New World, the truth that things in that world rarely turned out to be what they seemed, nor the way they were planned. Because if Columbus were to disembark on that coast today, 500 years later, he would find those hills eroded and treeless, filled with makeshift shacks, open sewers, garbage-littered alleyways, and yet the name, Puerto Plata, Port of Silver, persists, whispering to its inhabitants, most of them mired in, the dis in despair and poverty, that perhaps someday things will get better, stubbornly whispering a promise of paradise. So the story of Latin America, from the very start, includes both an early utopian longing and its almost immediate frustration. This contradiction has persist persisted through the ages, coming down to us in two central attitudes between which Latin Americans today wildly swing, summarized in two phrases that we habitually use to refer to our contemporary condition. Two phrases, que maravilla, and somos un desastre. <laughs> que maravilla could roughly be translated as how marvelous, the celebration by Latin Americans of the wonders of their own lands, a fierce attachment to the amazing variety of climates and landscapes, races and languages, cultures and animals and plants that fill and delight our lives. Almost every human ethnia has found its way to our continent and mingled there, Europeans of every kind and Africans, of course, and Asians as well, not only the small contingents of Japanese and Koreans and Chinese immigrants, but the major waves of wanderers who crossed the Bering Straits originally thousands of years ago and gave birth to the Indians who then proceeded to cover the lands from pole to pole. But more wonderful perhaps is another sort of diversity, first spelled out of the Cuban novelist Alejo Carpentier. In his 1953 novel, The Lost Steps, Los Pasos Perdidos, a musicologist in search of the origins of humanity takes a trip to the God-forsaken interior of Latin America. 
This odyssey gradually turns into a voyage that step after step advances into the successive layers of time past. Why? Because our Latino continent, Latin America, is the only place on the planet in which all the periods of history still coexist side by side, where all the styles and customs and experiences that the West has developed and exported and imposed upon other lands remain intact and ready to visit, as if in a living museum. Carpentier proposes Latin America as a continent where the modern and the prehistoric and everything in between subsist and endure next to each other. Que maravilla! Latin America is a place where anything can happen, everything is possible. Unfortunately, what did happen was a catastrophe. And we come, therefore, inevitably, as the continent itself did, to that second phrase or attitude or mood, somos un desastre, which can be inadequately translated as we are a disaster. Now, if the English version sounds strange to our ears, it may be because the Spanish language formulation is itself rather awkward. Note that we Latin Americans are not demanding to know why we are living a disaster. ¿Por qué vivimos en desastre? Why such a condition has befallen us. But stating rather that our being is itself a calamity, the fact that we understand existence in the Americas south of the Rio Grande as a permanent ontological cataclysm. Even when we most enjoy life, even when we are at our most sensual and playful and maravillados, marvels, right? Filled with awe and gratitude and astonishment, it is hard to escape the apprehension that something has gone terribly wrong. We wonder how it can be, now that we approach the bicentenary of our independence 200 years, that a continent with such enormous potential wealth and extraordinary human resources has ended up as an economic and political failure, though I hope not a cultural failure. Oh, yes, we have survived up till now, held together under the storm. But what sort of price have we paid for that conjoining? What have we had to do to one another in order to keep from disintegrating? And who is to blame for that inability of Latin America to live up to its originating utopian promise? The first and most influential answer to these questions was given in 1845 by Domingo Faustino Sarmiento, a young Argentine who had fled the tyranny of Rosas in a book titled Facundo, appropriately known as the founding text of Latin American historiography, journalism, and literature. In fact, if, if you want to think of what this text would be like in your tradition, think of somebody who would bring together Moby Dick and Walden. That's what Facundo was to us, more so, because there was no Edgar Allan Poe nearby. Anyway. So a text that is indeed so striking and adventurous that it has framed every subsequent debate on the subject, in fact, created the paradigm through which our nations have since then conceived and perceived themselves, even for those of us who are critical of Sarmiento's vision. Sarmiento was 34 years old when he created Facundo from his Chilean exile, exactly the age, he was quick to point out in later essays, of his country's independence. But we fuddled this a little bit. Anyway, and found himself therefore in the perfect position to ponder how it was that the rebellion against the Spanish colonial master and the glorious Enlightenment ideal that inspired those insurrections all over Latin America had led to interminable civil war, economic decline, unyielding backwardness. In order to tem the tide of anarchy and chaos, our republics, our republics were increasingly being governed by conservative and dictatorial regimes. How was it that the Latin American revolutions dedicated to liberty, fraternity, and equality, 
had ended up with the opposite of what they had set out to do. Faced with this enigma, particularly in contrast with the incredible success story of the United States shining ominously to the north of that same hemisphere, Sarmiento came up with an explanation that was pithily phrased, a dichotomy that served as a subtitle of his book, Civilización y Varevarie. That was the subtitle, Facundo, Civilización y Varevarie. We are caught, Sarmiento said, in an epic battle between the forces of civilization and the forces of barbarism. The wild, natural world of Latin America, specifically the Pampas in the case of Argentina, had taken possession of the hearts and minds of far too many inhabitants of the new fatherland. And it was this demonic energy that needed to be tamed and domesticated, submitted to white European rationality and industry. If we wish to master the disintegrating forces of both the colonial past and of savage nature, if we wish to enter, like the United States has, the concert of nations, the only way, Sarmiento said, was the disciplined road of progress. In order to catch up with Europe, we need to replicate its example, break with the past so that the freedom and spirit of enterprise that have led the established powers of the West to predominance can, can be repeated here in Latin America in a more youthful and creative way. These were not destined to be merely abstract ideas. Many years later, Sarmiento became president of Argentina, and he served in other administrations as minister of education and minister of the interior, which is like home affairs. And he then turned his formula of civilization and, or barbarism into public policy. He was trying to exercise the frightful wildness lurking inside the soul of Latin America, and perhaps his own soul, perhaps subconsciously attempting to separate himself and his westward-looking Argentina from what he considered genetically inferior Indian blood, which cursed, coursed, and cursed, in fact, through the veins of so many of his countrymen. Whatever the psychological motives of Sarmiento, and there were plenty of economic and political reasons that could also be mentioned, the fact is that Sarmiento helped put into place a series of measures that sought to turn Argentina into one nation and that were vigorously pursued as the, cult, as the century wore on. Primary school instruction was offered to all. Every child in the republic was, was, was able to, to have that sort of instruction. Technology, capital, and cultural models were imported from abroad. The nomad Indians who roamed the plains were exterminated in La Campaña del Desierto, that very name, Campaña del Desierto, the Campaign of the Desert, indicating that those places were considered desert. Nobody inhabited them, right? So therefore, you couldn't really exterminate them. They weren't really human beings, right? And thousands of European settlers were persuaded to come and colonize those supposedly empty territories. A similar process, of course, was happening not only in the rest of Latin America, but all across the globe during the latter half of the 19th century as superior technological military capacity led to the subjugation of indigenous peoples who had held out for centuries against Western incursions. As Sarmiento himself was to write many years later, if this terrible procedure of civilization, I'm quoting him, is barbaric and cruel to the eyes of justice and reason, it is like war itself, like conquest, one of the ways providence has armed diverse human races and among these the most powerful and advanced, to replace those who, by their organic weakness or backwardness, stand in civilization's path and cannot achieve the great destinies of man on earth. The sort of Darwinism before Darwin almost. Sarmiento recognized that Latin America had arrived to the planetary race for progress late and was therefore condemned to be a secondary player on the world stage 
unless its fledgling republics could match the foreign imperial powers, unless its elites could harness the enormous dynamism and resources of these new lands to the freedom and technology necessary for real development. This meant that those impaired inhabitants of the Americas who were holding back the march towards modernization would either have to be eradicated from the earth or integrated through education into the mainstream, in other words, made into citizens, in other words, Europeanized. In the name of the nation, the wandering and dangerous remaining tribes of the Americas were terrorized into submission, made to live thenceforth, in fact, the sedentary experience that most of the other Indians of the continent had been going through since the Iberian conquest and colonization. Since that conquest and colonization, in fact, had defeated the Aztec, Mayan, and Inca civilizations in Mexico, Central America, and the Andean region, and forged its millions upon millions of inhabitants into a workforce that toiled the mines and the fields, and yes, the beds and the bedrooms. These enormous masses of indigenous peoples had not been eliminated or assimilated over the centuries. They had continued to breed, to keep and modify, of course, the languages and cultures, and from time to time had burst into major uprisings, uprisings in Guatemala, in Ecuador, in Peru, and above all in Mexico, where they participated in two revolutions that had at their center the needed to redistribute land and water. At the end of the 19th century, and during the first part of the 20th, the Indian question, I put this, la question india, right, the, the question of the Indians, what to do with the Indians, basically, what to do with them, came up again, again and again. What to do with these people who seem to live in the past and whose sloth and otherness was blamed for the backwardness of Latin America lagging ever farther behind the United States and Europe. This policy differed from the racist and immoral policies set in motion in the United States and other parts of the world only in as much as it fortunately, in our case, did not accomplish what it set out to do. I use that word fortunately because I am part of a counter-tendency in Latin American intellectual thought that believes that rather than blaming our rank human diversity for this underdevelopment, responsibility should instead be assigned to the unwillingness of our rulers to include those who are different as real partners in the national consensus entertain a genuine dialogue with them. And that word diversity does not, of course, only comprise the so-called Indians, but also the vast throngs of the dispossessed of Latin America. I'm talking about the slaves transported from Africa and their descendants. I'm talking about the workers of whatever color who have fought in the mines and the factories for a decent life for themselves and their children and for national control over the resources owned by foreign companies. And diversity means also the peasants who take over the farmlands from which their ancestors were expelled, the homeless squatters in the cities occupying vacant buildings and empty lots. All, all of these are part of that diversity. And also, of course, the many others. The more well-to-do who took up the cause of those excluded millions, students and lawyers and doctors, all those who continue to rebel generation after paria generation, incessantly demanding to redefine the nation that has prescribed them, proscribed them, I'm sorry. And yet, how not to recognize as well that in the past, almost every one of the leaders who headed these social movements was killed. They all ended up, my heroes, as martyrs, torn apart, betrayed, invaded, destroyed, overthrown, banished, Tupacamaru and Zapata, and Arbenz, and Salvador Allende. It is true that the resisting multitudes have been able to prove by their mere persistence and rejection of the choice between civilization and barbarism, between disappearing and assimilating, that Sarmiento was wrong, 
Showing how fragile and precarious and unstable is the nation, any nation that would be built without their presence. But it is also incontestable that those legions of the excluded are not the ones who have determined the fundamental direction of Latin America, nor have they been able to change the terms that Sarmiento stated so many years ago, nor change indeed the very conditions of structural inferiority that shaped Sarmiento's thought and solution. Decade after decade, the cause of an alternative version of Latin America kept on resurrecting, and decade after decade, the men in power, the men who decided the rules of the game, the men who kept on dreaming of silver in the trees and of obedient bodies to extract that silver, these men continued to insist, as if they were deaf, that the deep problems of the continent could be solved, and they could be solved without taking into account the desires of those bodies and the resistance by those bodies to the plans hatched from above and from abroad. The men in power have gone on telling themselves and their nations that at some point those inflexible, recalcitrant populaces needed to be helped into conveniently disappearing. I got my first taste of this blindness and perhaps also a hint of its costs just a few days after I arrived in August of 1954 in what was to be my adopted country, Chile. I was a 12-year-old lad born in Argentina and brought up during the last decade in New York, not speaking by my own volition, not even a word of Spanish, not knowing very much about Latin America except that it was a dreaded place to which I would have to resign myself before heading back in a few years' time, or so I thought to my beloved United States. Almost as if I had been inadvertently following the secret instructions murmured to me by the dead Sarmiento, that compatriot of mine whose name I did not even know, he was murmuring to me, erase your origins, make yourself into a civilized gringo. Now, on that first arrival in Santiago, one of my father's Chilean subordinates at the UN regional office, uh, my, my dad was a, 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 a UN, uh, he, he had ceased to be his fellow here and was at the UN then, an economist who answered by the name of Pepe, whose surname I would rather not reveal, this economist, in order to ingratiate himself with the new boss, had taken the family, minus my dad, on a tour of the city we would henceforth call home. And this culminated with a climb to the top of a small hill in the center of Santiago, the Cerro Santa Lucia, where the Spanish conquistador Pedro de Valdivia had founded the city in 1540. He had chosen a place easy to fortify against the encroaching and bellicose Mapuche Indians, who in fact, three years later, later, would ambush Valdivia, and the legend goes, apocryphal but still a good, good story, pour down his dead throat the molten gold that was the primary reason why he had journeyed this far south. As Pepe and my family mounted towards the summit, our new friend offhandedly remarked that, of course, there were no Indians left in Chile today. An opinion, by the way, that I was to hear repeated tirelessly over the years innumerable times by Chilean high society. I knew next to nothing back then, as I have said, about that country or any other Latino land, but I did have eyes, and I had seen the dark features of people crowding the streets. I had seen the bronze-skinned workers on the Valparaiso dock where our ship had arrived. My glance had caught the slanted eyes of the slum dwellers watching our car speed by on the way to Santiago. I had even caught a glimpse of a couple of women in native dress selling herbs and trinkets on a corner in Santiago. So it was clear to this child, at least, who came from what even then the multicultural city of New York, that Chile was filled to the brim with Indians and their descendants. Descendants, yes, Pepe answered, when my mother gently voiced out loud the same doubts her son was harboring, but more quietly I was doing that at least. 
But, Pepe said, no more real Indians like they were back in the time of the conquistadores. No more pure Indians like this one. And Pepe stopped in front of a large statue, the replica of a muscular Indian with noble, almost Hollywood-like features, standing in quiet defiance, almost at the summit of the hill that had once presumably belonged to him and his people. I'll explain that, that word, that adverb, presumably. This, our guide said, is Caupolicán, the great Araucanian warrior who resisted the Spanish invasion in the 16th century and was martyred by his foes. He doesn't look very martyred, I said, pesky kid that I was. What did they do to him? Pepe reddened slightly. His command of English, already clumsy, began to falter even more. They, they put him, um, they, they put him on a large wooden stake, you know, from beneath a, well, you know, up his, and that made him bleed to death. Why didn't the sculptor show the death then? I persisted, the typical coarse curiosity of a 12-year-old. That would have been a sight, I told my thought, I thought to myself, a warrior with a stake up his ass, bleeding into oblivion. As if he could read my mind, our friend Pepe muttered that it was better to remember heroes in less awkward positions, a matter of public decorum. This effigy, after all, was reproduced extensively in school texts and other public places, etc., etc., right? We've heard all that before. None of which answered another question that crept into my mind. Why did the statue stir in me a vague reminiscence, as if I had seen it somewhere before? But that was impossible. I knew less about native Chileans than I did about Chile itself. So I held my tongue and did not give the matter a second thought until several decades later when I discovered, while doing research for a novel, the full and perverse story of how the last moments of Copolican on this earth had come to be sanitized in that block of stone. And here's the story. To begin with, Copolican had not been the original name given to that statue by Nicanor Plaza. That was the Chilean sculptor, born in 1844, a few streets away from where the exiled Sarmiento was writing his Facundo. This Chilean sculptor had been commissioned in the late 1860s by some gringos at the U.S. Embassy in Santiago to make it a likeness of an authentic or Araucanian Indian. But Plaza, who then went on to sculpt his work of art shuttered up in a Parisian studio, having no idea what such a primitive specimen might possibly look like, probably never even have tried to even really behold one, decided instead, what do you think he decided to do? He copied an Indian engraving he detected in The Last of the Mohicans, the novel by the Yankee writer James Fenimore Cooper. So, back in Chile, this stone likeness was indignantly rejected by the Yankee patrons, who had no desire whatsoever to transport back to the States an American Indian from the North masquerading as an Aborigine from the South. And so Nicanor Plaza was left with a slab of useless chiseled stone. Useless, that is, unless he... Yes. The Cerro Santa Lucia was being remodeled as a distinguished park full of all sorts of imported busts and steps and chapels. And thus, when the new grounds and esplanades were inaugurated in 1873, at the very moment when the Indian warriors were losing the lands they had held onto for centuries and being pushed farther and farther south away from Santiago, lapsing into a sort of a irrelevant stupor of invisibility, Plaza's statue, rebaptized Caupolicán, was exhibited for the edification of visitors to be thenceforth integrated into the memory of the nation and future schoolchildren. Now, this story is bizarre. 
I mean, so many stories in Latin America about delusions, about thinking that we are one thing and, in fact, presenting an image of another. But the really interesting question is, how is it that the committee that selected monuments for the park could accept that false version of an Araucanian Indian, that copy of what was already a phony North American Indian? At a time when the remote great-grandchildren of Caupolicán were being pushed away from the centers of power and no longer constituted a threat, left to fester in faraway reducciones indígenas, reserves, right? What could be more convenient for the elites who wanted to differentiate their recently constituted nations from the former Spanish rulers than to resurrect alternative ancestors under the guise of the noble savage, right? The noble savage is that Western myth of innocence that had accompanied and complemented the malevolent and satanic versions of the indigenous as the colonial powers expanded across the globe. The committee was able to pay, they paid a second time, right, for that statue, precisely because it had no connection any real Indian dreaming under the Chilean moon or resisting under the Chilean sun or working for a Chilean wage. And more crucially, perhaps, because that statue did not have a large stake jutting into the guts and intestines of its counterfeit Araucanian cacique. I believe it was the absence of torture that gave the statue its real value. So Capulican was not only paid for it twice, he was killed twice. Once in the torment the Spanish visited upon him, and a second time in the forgetting. His trauma masked and disguised and twisted beyond any recognizable form, absorbed into the national mythology so that any adult could casually tell a child of 12 that there were no more Indians, so that every adult could comfortably acknowledge the Indian past without delving into the Indian pain, forcing us to avoid the question that effectively matters. Where is he? Donde está? Where is Caupolicán? Donde está Caupolicán? If there was somebody real of flesh and blood and bones who back in the 1540s was tortured to death by the marauders who invaded his land, then what is left of him? Where are the other Indians who followed him into death? Where is the Mabucha woman who not far from where he died, where they died, where is she? The one who, at the time of the conquest, was thrown down into the soil of Chile with her legs forced open. Where is the woman who was penetrated in a different manner than Caupolicán had been? Where is she? How does she fit into the memory of the nation? How does he, how does she, how do they, presently lost in a mirage, a mirage of statues, claim their share in that nation? I wish I were only speaking about the long ago dead, about distant memories, about old battles. I wish I were not speaking about now. But unfortunately, I speak of today. What was done to Caupolicán and that unnamed Indian woman and their many brothers and sisters at the dawn of Latin American history has been recycled in many other forms throughout that history. Not only the multiplication of the terror, but the incessant forgetting of that terror. Yesterday is today. Consider what has just happened in Chile, recently emerged a mere 12 years ago from a dictatorship with the sort of suffering inflicted upon Caupolicán was visited upon thousands upon thousands of citizens who had dared in the past to dream of a truly encompassing version of the country. If I have been able to speak about the disappearing of Indians from the consciousness of the powerful of Latin America, it is because the word itself, desaparecido, the disappeared, has been forced upon me by history and is now notorious around the globe. It described what was being perpetrated by the Pinochet regime and the military regimes in Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil and Guatemala, El Salvador and Honduras, the active disappearance of dissidents, men and women who were arrested and whose whereabouts were denied, whose bodies were not even returned for burial, dumped into the sea or plowed into the fields so that there could be no memorial, 
supposedly no memory, no place to gather and remember and commemorate. What was done, once done primarily to the Indians, now imposed upon many others who did not consider themselves indigenous at all, used against whoever might protest Chile's lack of freedom, Chile's forced modernization, Chile's accelerated integration into the global market. Shades of Sarmiento, yesterday is today. When it took over the country in 1990, the newly elected government of Chile was faced with a difficult situation. The victory of the democratic forces had left intact the power of the military and its followers, as well as the economic hegemony of a small group of wealthy Chileans who had grown even richer under the dictatorship. This meant that the new democratic rulers were severely restricted in what they could or could not do. The question of how to bring together a country that was exceptionally divided by de decades of civil strife and differing interpretations of the recent past became paramount and closely related to how the new government understood the nation's trauma and how it wanted to present that nation's future, not only to its own people, but to a planet that automatically identified Chile with torture, Chile with arbitrariness, Chile with suffering and insurgency. Not the best sales pitch for a country that beckons enticingly to tourists and investment bankers. By one of those strange coincidences that history seems to love, particularly in my darling, demented Latin America, the first occasion to remake my country's image and export a more positive version of it, for at least abroad, was the 1992 World Fair in Sevilla, dedicated to celebrating the 500 years of the Americas. What the Chilean government bizarrely decided to do, with the assistance of the armed forces and the business community, that it enthusiastically gorged itself during the dictatorship, what they decided to do was to choose an iceberg as the representation of the new Chile, proceeding to hack an enormous slab of ice out of the cold mountains of Antarctica and then cart it across the Atlantic to be exhibited in the burning heat of Sevilla. A benevolent observer might construe the snaring of a flo floating glacier as an extravagant way of reinserting Chile in the magical realist tradition of the rest of Latin America. But in fact, the organizers of the expedition had a symmetrically opposite purpose in mind to distinguish themselves from the other countries of the continent, lumped together as excessively, quote-unquote, tropical and, quote-unquote, violent. Son demasiado tropicales y violentos, those people. The iceberg was a way of shedding the dreadful public image of Chile as a land of tyranny and sorrow, poverty and backwardness, and project instead a cool country. Un país frío. A country far from even the whiff of a banana republic. A country that was efficient and calculated and rational a country that you could trust with your money, right? Shades of Sarimiento, here we go again. Yesterday is tomorrow. Let me confess that I adored the zaniness of the project. Its confidence, not misplaced, by the way, in the capacity of Chileans to autonomously invent the technology that could keep the iceberg from melting in the tarred frying pan of the European summer. Let me concede that I adored how unconventional and utopian this adventure was. But even if I found this break with the past and the traps of nostalgia to be refreshing, that does not mean I was, unable, I was unable to simultaneously recognize how the iceberg marketing strategy was also, either overtly or covertly, conceived as a way to avoid any mention of the recent dictatorial past. Wasn't the amnesiac ice of Antarctica attempting to obliterate the pain left over from the Pinochet era? Foes and friends of the tyrant supposedly rallying around the desire to sell Chile and Chilean goods abroad? 
And it was suspicious that the image makers of the new Chile had chosen as their symbol the only piece of the national territory that had never been occupied by previous inhabitants or by any other living human being for that matter. I mean, there, had been, there were penguins, right? But there were no human beings in Antarctica. What better thing than an iceberg to project the desire for an immaculate future cheerfully sidestepping the dilemma of how to blend those indigenous troublemakers, those indigenous troublemakers into the imagined community of the fatherland, erasing not only their presence, but the challenge they predicate. I could see the globalized ghosts of Sarmiento silhouetted inside the iceberg, again civilization and technology offering themselves to conquer wild nature, again predicting Latin America that would work wonderfully well if it were not for those irritating, primitive, anti-modern inhabitants and their present-day defenders. So let's simply make believe they're not there, right? And the same questions came up again, yet again, as they have during our almost 200 years of independence. And answer to those questions even more urgent in an interconnected global mar marketplace where the poor lands control their fate even less than they did in the past. The same questions. These are the first, these are really the basic questions that, that we're, we're facing in, in, in not in Latin America, but in so many other places around the world today, which are the questions that we should be addressing after your September 11, 2001. Did we need, do we need, in order to build a free and prosperous future to make a clean and icy break with the past? In times such as these, what holds a nation together? Can it be the past if that past has led to so many frustrations and false starts, if that past is an incessant source of instability and divisions? Isn't it better to forge the nation's identity by fixing our eyes on where we are going, a shining and radically different future, a future that turns into a country like, why not, the United States? Isn't it better to turn the page, forget the laments and the suffering, start all over again, as if we were Columbus himself about to sight the trees full of silver of Puerto Plata, but this time get it right, this time learn from our mistakes? Wouldn't a renascent Sarmiento suggest the same solution all over again? Is there any alternative way to catch up now that it's the Internet and the global economy and the cell phone and cyber optic cable that might allow us to join the virtual concert of nations? Perhaps I should... Grant Sarmiento himself a rejoinder to that question, because his Facundo is not only noteworthy for having so starkly outlined a drastic solution to the mystery of Latin America's economic and political miscarriages. A closer look at the text itself revealed its author's deep ambiguity about his own central thesis. While preaching unity, northern decorum, and refined harmony, his Facundo masterpiece itself is monstrous a romantic mixture of all possible genres, from history to fiction, from journalism to drama, from diatribe to sociological analysis to biography, a hodgepodge of conflicting narratives that do not conform to any European classification. His book itself is a cracked and fragmented mirror which inadvertently reflects, as it struggles itself not to fall apart, the very continent that it is, to all appearances, submitting to judicious control. And Sarmiento's best writing subtly celebrates the very barbaric forces he would destroy and subdue. He is fascinated by the excessive marvels, quemaravilla, of the infinite pampas, a majestic lightning storm, the vast and frightful horizons, the tiger that hunts down men and is hunted by them in return, the extraordinary lives of the machos who populate the plains, trackers and scouts and cattle herders and guides and warriors. In short, Sarmiento is in love with the wild, perhaps because he somehow grasped that the backlands are what confer upon him his identity as an American, those distinct characteristics which anchor him as forever diverging and deviant from European normalcy, the peculiar and anguishing crossroads that make him, let us say, marketable in the civilized world he so wishes to join, 
the troubling fact that his own existence is deeply wedded to that turbulent beauty and tempestuous violence. He may yearn for the salons of Paris and the railroads of England and the textile mills of Massachusetts, but he views his own urgent task as joining the two contradictory halves of his land, the two antagonistic zones of his being, writing, in fact, as your own Ricardo Pigle has pointed out, a heroic way of confederating into text what reality has irretrievably split asunder, his written words anticipating and pointing the way to a hybrid solution, a mestizo bringing together of disparate elements into something neither entirely European nor pre-Columbian. So Sarimiento projects Latin America as a space in between, a space of many in between. If history back then, in the middle of the dangerous disorder of the 19th century, did not allow room for that sort of experiment, that quest for a way in which a divided Latin America could meet and mingle and hold together in a novel way, could it be possible that now, at this very special moment in the history of the planet, when democracy has been given a second breath, is it not conceivable that we might now be ready to build from that reciprocal give and take a new way of engaging the old dilemma of our continent, create Latin America as a beautifully bastardized mixture that would rise out of a dialogue with the submerged zones of our reality? It is true that one must be cautious, wary of not trying to win with highly charged literary words the moral victory that has been denied to us in the battlefields of history. When I look upon the self-delusion of our governments, whose proclamation of their supposedly fresh and original neoliberal ideas is no more than a blind repetition of the formulas of the past, when I see the financial and social debt we have accumulated, when I see the rampant corruption, when I see the United States poised to intervene yet one more time in the jungles of Colombia, as it's done in so many jungles and beaches and deserts of Latin America in the past, when I see how we once again lag behind and once again hear the same voices indicting our culture, our races, our diversity, our chaos, as if we were cursed by our diversity and internal differences instead of being blessed by them, let me admit that I find it difficult not to despair. On the other hand, in the last decade, a vast social movement has been shaking Latin America, at the same time shaking the very assumptions upon which the national consensus has been built. And this encourages me to be faintly hopeful. The most well-known of these moments uh, I'm sorry, the most well-known of these movements is certainly the uprising in Chiapas, where Subcomandante Marcos and the indigenous people who have accepted him as one of their own have gone beyond the perilous trappings of martyrdom, and I hope nostalgia as well. I'm not sure about that, but I hope so. But there are many other less publicized groups, just as sophisticated and compelling, that are spreading across the reaches of what was once the Inca Empire, with a particularly potent collective network of indigenous activists in Ecuador and Bolivia. You can see this, by the way, in the latest elections all over Latin America. This is not just something that I'm, I'm speaking about as, as, as a sort of a movement in the margins. In Brazil, the MST, the Landless Peasant Movement, has mobilized millions of landless peasants in a quest for land and also for a different way of producing food. In my own Chile, nobody today would dare to articulate the senseless idea that Mapuches do not exist. During the last years, the faraway sons and daughters of Copacabana have demanded language rights, autonomy, land, demanded, in fact, memory, in ways that would have astounded the sculptor Nicanor Plaza and the committee that selected his false statue to represent the Araucanian present and past. I could go on about Guatemala and Peru and Panama and Venezuela. What is most interesting about these movements is that they are attempting to step outside the Sarmiento paradigm, the Sarmiento debate in which Latin America has become embroiled, in which my own remarks have, in fact, thus far been entangled all along. These new movements swell out of a new Indian experience of the world that no longer dreams itself as an impossibly pure and authentic millinerist archetype 
antagonistic to modernity. These Indians see themselves rather as absolutely contemporary, already participating in the global system, but from another set of values, another source of wisdom. Positing an alternative globalization on its present scale and model, but using all the newest technologies and instruments available. And this braces them to be the engine of an array of other movements representing those marginalized by the ruling classes of Latin America, with needs and interests as vast as our own flora and fauna, and where women are particularly concerned protagonists. Questions remain. Can these movements seriously affect the way in which Latin America will imagine and recompose its identity? I have no crystal ball, but the American CIA, in a report about the state of the world in the year 2015, warns that the resurgence of indigenous movements across the earth precisely in those areas where the major sources of the planet's energy are situated, is one of the most troubling aspects of what the immediate future might bring. And who am I, ever the perennial troublemaker, to doubt the intelligent experts of the United States? Or will our future always reflect the past? Does survival inevitably mean, in Latin America and elsewhere, that those who do not fit must be sacrificed, must be left to die or die out? Is that the price every successful nation in our times would pay for its unity, for its very success, for leaving the past behind? Is that the secret cost of becoming truly modern? Is it hopelessly naive and idiotically optimistic to suggest that there might be an alternative? Or are we fated to repeat over and over again the same scenarios of self-delusion that have failed in the past? Will we always be div as divided as we were when all this started back in 1492? For my part, my part, I am hesitant to be excessively prophetic, given that Shadowed and who knows if mocked by Sarmiento, I live in the overdeveloped United States. I'm giving this lecture here in Princeton in English, far from the continent I am supposedly representing. But I continue to be thankful that I was given a chance to listen to the drowned voices of history, the dead and repressed and hopeful voices of our history. This aging adult who was once a child of 12, closer to the last of the Mohicans than to the first of the Chileans, who did not even know how to pronounce the name of Caupolicán, who was himself blind to his heritage, who fell in love with the turbulent variety of Latin America and with the outcasts of the history, I can say very clearly that I've never felt anything but gratitude and joy at that experience. I am convinced that only if that variety is celebrated as our ultimate resource, our maravilla de las maravillas, will we be able to escape the curse of our history, go beyond the polarity of civilization and barbarism that Sarmiento trapped himself in, trapped us along with him, only will this celebration of our own people allow us to start creating nations of a different sort, nations that are ravishingly beautifully mon beautiful monsters made from all the disparate strands of our being, nations that are finally not afraid to look themselves in the mirror, look themselves in the mirror and smile. Thank you so much. Questions for Professor Dorfman? By the way, I, I was not a professor when I, when I arrived in the United States. I was two and a half. <laughs> I was laughing at this. Thank you for your introduction. Thank you. The questions don't have to be about this. They can be about anything else. About not anything else, but almost anything else. Uh, yes, please. I think you should wait for the microphone just for a second. what's known as liberation theology? Um, or Le 
Liberation that, theology. Liberation theology. Yes. Well, I mean, and I was liberation theology is, is a movement in, uh, Latin, in the Latin American Catholic Church, though it has outreaches into other faiths as well, which is basically uh, comes from a rereading and reinterpretation of, of Catholic and Christian traditions of Christ as a liberator and as the, the representative of the poor, and that therefore the only way that you can bring Christ's kingdom on earth is with social justice. Let's put it in a, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being so unfair, right? Uh, however, we must remember that, was it yesterday this dreadful event occurred? Uh, Jose Maria Escrivá de Balaguer, right? What? Sunday. You know, the, the, the patron saint of the Opus Dei was canonized as a saint in Rome. This has not happened to Camilo Torres yet. So, I think, you know, if, if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, it is the constant history of heresy coming out of some of the, the enseñanza, the teachings of the original Christ, I mean, in that sense. I'm not Christian myself, but I, I understand in no sense. And it comes out of the fact that the great majority of the, the Catholics in Latin America are very poor people. So you're constantly finding over and over again bishops and priests and cardinals who will defend those poor in incredible situations, in very difficult situations. That, that's what I can tell you about liberation theology. I mean, otherwise we would go into something really very different. It, it's, it's inside the same structure that I'm talking about, right? In other words, uh, one, one, of the, one of the things that I haven't mentioned in my talk was that the, the strength and diversity of all these movements affects very significantly large sectors of the more educated classes and therefore creates spaces of dialogue and of interpretation and of thinking about these things. It breaks down the ways in which people think about these things. You've got to think that the, that the church arrived with Columbus, right? The idea was the sword and the cross, right? Or the, the, the sword turned upside down as a cross. Uh, but very, very soon thereafter, Bartolomé de las Casas, who had, had himself been a, a, an Indian, uh, a, an exploiter of Indians, turned into the defender of the Indians in ways that, that should make us all very proud of humanity. So it's from the very beginning of Latin American history that this story begins. And, and there is the famous debate with Vittoria about whether the Indians have a soul or they don't have a soul. They decided they did have a soul, and the result was they brought in blacks from Africa because they didn't. So, I mean... <laughs> History has certain unintended consequences to it. And extraordinary ironies. I was, thinking, I was thinking about the the fact that the the Pope, the Polish Pope, who was so instrumental uh, in the uh, rise of solidarity movement in Poland, was uh, lectured, was quite scolded the the the, the uh, Theologians about liberation theology. Well, I mean, how do you explain this? How do you explain that? Well, what's good against the communists is not good against the others, I suppose. You know, but uh, I think the Pope is a very contradictory figure. I, I think he has a series of, of exceedingly uh, progressive statements in relation to the the poor and in relation to. Uh, the forms of exploitation that exist in the world, and I think he is incredibly conservative in other senses. But I think bureaucracies look after themselves. 
that's what I think bureaucracy ends up doing. But I, I, there's another person over there. Yes. Last where? En la Católica de, de, de la Universidad de Chile, sí. de, 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 de Santiago. Sí, yes. con, con Felipe Larén. And um, it seems to me that Chileans are extremely proud, or this is sort of a generalization, but there's a sort of social pride in their economic model. Um, there's a lot of respect in the region for the stability of Chile now. And there are many sort of very smart economists, particularly in, in la Católica, who would say that this is, this is sort of a new phenomenon and that if there's any hope for Chile and for, for Bolivia, for Argentina, Argentina is trickier. But, um, Argentina, that, that would, no, it's very important you should mention Argentina because that's what they were saying three years ago. Yeah, um, but, but I mean, you, you, you said that perhaps neoliberal, this neoliberal solution isn't working, but many, many would argue that, that the problem is that it's, just, it's not profound enough yet. If you but, you know, we've been, we've been told this for 150 years. For 150 years, for almost 200 years, they keep on saying to us, it's just not profound enough. You just haven't privatized enough. You just haven't done that, right? So when somebody, such as what they did in Argentina, is they privatized, they did all these things, the result is not, as they say, that Argentina was not the model pupil. It wasn't that at all. It's true that the democratic structures were not strong enough in that country to, to create transparency, to create power of accountability, etc. Now, Chile is the one, not the one, but it, it's, it's of the Latin American countries, certainly the most stable and the most economically successful of all those countries. It is also the only one of those countries that had a center-left government during the last 12 years. And therefore, it's the only one that has redistributed income in some sense. Even so, though there has been, you know, there are many ways in which you measure how a country grows, right? And one of the problems of the problem, the problems of growth is that in Chile, Chile is one of the countries that has the highest disparity of income inequality in Latin America. Now, they were supposed to, you see, the problem is I'm old enough to remember that this was told to me when I was your age and that all we had to do was wait five more years and it would all come to us. It hasn't happened. I'm suggesting to you that the problem is not only an economic problem, but a cultural problem, precisely, where, where what, what the, the Chilean economists, such as the one that you studied under, are saying is, if we only become like them, we will be them. And I am saying that there is a profound, dissonant, cognitive problem there. Because we are not them. And I dream of a world where it will not be the automatic globalization of everything and the imitation of what has happened elsewhere that will solve our problems. For instance, they say, oh, but look at East Asia, okay? Well, the East Asian economies were all constructed with a very strong central state that managed to develop those countries in that way. So the FMI comes in and says to us, oh, get rid of all of that, okay? Well, look, look, at, look at what's happening today. You have to take a longer view of this. But... I think the economists and the Catholics are right for themselves, certainly, and the people that they represent, very much so. I'm not saying that they're entirely wrong either. I'm just saying there is no dialogue about this. The, the whole problem of globalization today, as it's understood, is that there seems to be one way and one way only, and I don't believe that's true at all. I've never believed it. I think there are many alternatives, and that part of our dilemma, as a writer, certainly, as a public intellectual, if such a thing may even exist in this country, certainly, 
It's to think about these things publicly and ask ourselves these questions and look at them historically, without amnesia especially, right? I would like also to remind you of something, just one last thing. A great deal of the, the ways in which the economies of Latin America have been constructed in the last 20 years have been based upon incredible terror upon parts of their population. So, I mean, it's not difficult to keep the wages down if you take the, the head of the trade unions, you torture them, you, you, you put them against the wall, and you execute them. The rest of them are not going to ask for wage, right? So, of course, you, you've got a free hand to do whatever you want. The Pinochet model, let's say, which I, I just brought out a book about this, not about the economic model, but about what this means, right? And I think we have to think very carefully about what that, what that means of how you construct democratic societies, not based upon the terrorizing of the population so that they are cowed into submission and silence, but different ways of doing this. But I, I really welcome your question enormously. I think there's a dialogue. But there's no dialogue going on. These are not things that I, I would be able to say. I would be able to say. I can say them in Chile, let's say, but I wouldn't say them in this, this sort of honorable circumstance, let's say. Uh, yes, please. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry, the mic. The mic, good. Hey. There's, the, there's the person who knows what to do. Hello, uh, I'm Chilean, and I was really surprised when you start your speech saying that, well, I always consider that Chilean people have a really low self-esteem. So I was surprised when you said something like, all Latin Americans have that problem in some sense when they look at themselves and they say, we are a disaster. So I always been thinking about the reason why we Chileans are like that. And you now tell me that maybe all Latin America is like that. So I want to ask you, what's the reason for the low self-esteem? I would have to reread my speech. <laughs> I've just tried to explain it during uh, an excruciating 45 minutes or 50 minutes, whatever. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, that the main reason is that historically we look around the world and we, we see the world as not being, uh, as, as our having failed. We are failed republics. We are not complete republics. Yeah, but... I don't know. I, I, well, I was born after Pinochet, so uh -huh. I grew up in that regime. And I think that's really repressive, even if I wasn't in the bad side. Of no, things. there are no bad sides in this. There are yeah, terrible sides. Yeah, I know. Sides. I was, like, nowhere because I wasn't anyway. So, but I think that makes Chilean people a little more low self-esteem than the rest of Latin America. For example, Argentina doesn't look like they have any trouble at all. But you know something... Themselves, so, I don't but, know. But you know, that's really not true. Lately, in the last 15 years, the Chileans have been all over the place with their incredible arrogance because they feel as if they, they've made it. What we just please, heard, please, right? Please, 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 one opinion about it. I always... I actually say that to my friend. She's Mexican. She was in Chile. And she also feel the same, that we are really arrogant. Some of That we're what? We are really arrogant. Arrogant. But I think it's, also, it's this low self-esteem again. It's a way to, a bad way to react to that feeling, you know, when you feel like too, too small and then you have to try to look bigger. 
Yeah. And then you go to the bad side. So it's not like we are arrogant. We actually don't believe in ourselves. So we had to over overact or something like that. I don't know. The last years they spoke about, we are the tigres of Latin America. We are the jaguares of Latin America. We're, we're every animal you can imagine in existence except the humans of Latin America, you know. <laughs> uh, it's, I think there's arrogance. But, you know, it, the problem isn't that. If I'm going to be discussing... Small, uh, you know, small things about whether we're arrogant or we have low self-esteem or, or this sort of thing. Those are really psychological characteristics. I'm speaking about a structural thing about Latin America. Somos un desastre is a word that people use all the time, all over Latin America, right? It's not just Chileans. And it has to do with the fact that no, the United States doesn't say somos un desastre. They don't say that. A disaster has happened to them, but they don't say we are a disaster. We live a disaster. They don't say that. Hi, Professor Dorfman. I have a question. Um, my name is Casey McWaters. I don't mean to raise another stereotypical issue, but I was just wondering how you resolve the, uh, the link that a lot of... You're talking about the importance of indigenous cultures. I, I'm sorry, I can hardly hear you. Oh, yes. okay. Um, I know a lot of times it's very central in indigenous history or culture, religious traditions, the, the coca leaf. So I was wondering if you could say a few words about the fact that a lot of Latin American governments are having to address that as a result of U.S. pressures... Um, coca growth, that type of thing, and how that relates to the history and the indigenous populations. Well, you know, at, 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 at dinner tonight with my dear friend, Joyce Carol Oates, I was, I was saying, we stand up here and people ask us all sorts of questions for which we are absolutely unprepared. I mean, once again, I know about coca leaf very, very little, right? Because I, I really, I don't chew it myself, though I have been among some Bolivian and Ecuadorian Indians who do. It, it is a traditional form which is very much related to... Uh, the, the Andean highlands to be able to, to continue working in those, in those very high altitude places. And it has a series of spiritual and religious meanings, as, as you say. Uh, that is not to say that it is not at this point also be culti being cultivated as a major export crop for people who have no other alternative. The, the solution, if there is a solution to this problem, is a worldwide solution. I mean, it's one more example of how what happens here is very much related to what happens there, right? I mean, there has to be a, a series of measures that can solve the economic problems of the people who are cultivating coca and to leave them also with the possibility of cultivating coca as they used to, right? It, it's not the fault of a Bolivian peasant if uh, he or she all of a sudden finds that what she has been cultivating or he has been cultivating for thousands of years, is extremely important in parts of the, of the elite or the ghettos of the United States, right? I mean, you keep on telling us to become entrepreneurs. You keep on telling us to use the marketplace. That's what they're doing, right? Let's see, one last question. Yeah, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, help me uh, clarify a little bit uh, uh, your main thesis by uh, sort of embedding it in some a series of very small, short questions. First of all, you, talked, you mentioned the fact that in the United States people don't say this is a disaster, and in, Argentina, in Latin America people do. But presumably the thing that we are trying to explain here or understand is not the differences in self-perception, but the, the, the phenomenon of failure as a, as a reality, not, as a, not, not the perception of failure, right? So I would imagine. So if this is the case, then when we talk about the failure of Latin America, then uh, 
first of all, would that I would, would it be correct to think that you mean that this is a phenomenon that's not part of the fact that every place in the world is a failure? If the answer is no, it means that there must be some countries or places or regions that are not failures, or at least not failures in the same sense. And then I think it would be clearer, uh, to me at least, to, to, uh, what, what your thesis is, if we could uh, rephrase the question differently. What, what are the specific differences between Latin America and places that are not failures, that make Latin America failure, for example, would it be appropriate to take, uh, in order to say, let's avoid being controversial and talking about the United States, say, say would you consider Canada or Australia examples of non-failures that could be contrasted with the Latin American failure? And if this is so, what are the specific differences? Or, for example, to what extent the things that you told us about Latin America would not also apply, say, to Canada? Um, I don't know enough about Canada, Canadian cultural history to know if Canada has had its own Sarmiento, but whether or not it did, certainly they had a vision very similar about making the country sort of European and excluding the minorities or perhaps even totally destroying it. What are the specific differences between countries or regions that are, that are not failures as compared to what you told us about Latin America? Well, I mean, you know, if the Canadians have, just to go to the last part of this, the Canadians have one of the most advanced, from the point of view of social and cultural image of the indigenous peoples, one of the most advanced legislations in the world. Right now, right now. Now, right now, right, right now. Uh, and I applaud that. I wonder if they would have the same sort of legislation if in the middle of Saskatchewan there was 10 million Mayan people. In other words, there are ways in which certain nations deal with, with their indigenous populations because they can and that others can't, right? Uh, I use the idea, we are a disaster, somos un desastre, and que maravilla, as, uh, let's put them as metaphors or as ways into the psychology of Latin America, not as objective forms of understanding our being. It is the way in which we perceive ourselves. And I say that if we were only able to understand that, in fact, somos un desastre because we have not been able to recognize that that variety is, in fact, our being, our sense in the world, and which differentiates us from others, differentiates in the best sense of the word from others, right? There are things in Latin America that we have. If we were able to do that, we might be able to establish alternative forms of development. It has to do with development and misdevelopment. That's what I've been trying to do, right? So the United States, Europe, Canada, Australia, they have, certainly, they, they, there are ways in which they have developed which from the historical point of view could not be understood as failures. They have an enormous amount of trouble with, 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 with the way in which they have developed. It's, it's not an easy development. But when you compare such things as uh, I mean, what, what, are, what are called in the UN, you know, the, the basic questions of, of, of uh, child malnutrition or, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the death of children, especially housing, all these things, you look at Latin America and you see there this persistent, these persistent forms of inequality and poverty that will not go away. 
Though in the United States, of course, there are these same things happening, but the proportion of them are so enormously different that there, there, there are created two different poles of, of how these things develop. So, uh, I mean, it, 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 it's a matter really of deciding. I, I'm trying to say that the problems of development are not merely economic problems. They are problems of perception. They are problems of mythology. They are problems of imagining. And I'm trying to find ways in which we can imagine Latin America in a different perspective. I'm also suggesting that if, if we were able to imagine Latin America, I mean, as a collective, in a different perspective, and, and of course, Latin America could, could be a way of speaking of other places in the world as well that are, are, are dealing with these issues, we might, in fact, enter into a dialogue of a different sort with the supposedly non-failed nations. But, you know, a country like the United States, which has had constitutional governments followed by constitutional governments, is certainly an example of a country that, that is not, I mean, there are many flaws in this country, there are many weaknesses in this country, but it doesn't have the failings of a country such as mine or such as yours originally from Argentina uh, or any other country in Latin America. There is no country in Latin America that has had the story of constitutional succession of governments. Not one. There's not one. There's not one that hasn't had coup d'etat. There's not one that doesn't have incredible inequality, right? Even the most successful ones, which is the ones like Costa Rica, which got rid of its army, right? Fortunately, you know, have all sorts of problems in that sense. So when you look at that, what I'm trying just to do is saying the dichotomy of civilization here, let's become like them, let's get rid of the barbaros, let's get rid of the barbarians, is not going to solve the problem. What I'm really saying is, just by automatically globalizing, as they suggest, will not solve the problems of the world. It won't do it. We need an act of an imagination to understand that, that, that the forms of globalization have to occur, have to occur with a participation of more traditional forms where, where people, the way they really live their lives, you know? So it's, it's, it's the beginning of a dialogue. I, I, I certainly have used a more provocative way, but I thank you for clarifying. If, if it wasn't clear enough, I, I certainly uh, thank you for it. Okay, one, one last question and then... Uh, yeah, I enjoyed your talk very much. I found Thank it you. very illuminated. And at the same time, I kept wondering if you perhaps weren't being a bit unfair to Sarmiento. I wasn't uh, mean what? If you weren't being a bit unfair, unfair to, Sarmiento. to Sarmiento. And um, you know, the reason being is that you know, one of the things that always struck me about Sarmiento is that um, there wasn't just one group of barbarians for him. You know, he was interested in differences. And um, one of the things he was doing is he was trying to understand and to be the first one to write about the country where he was living. And he had an eye for differences that was, you know, that is very striking even now. You know, he compared the people from the city to the people from the countryside. He compared the people from one political party to the people from another one. And it's not just sort of one group of civilized over here and one group of barbarians over there, but it's all these nuances, you know, that he finds. And he's very critical against everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so one of the things, you know, it struck me... Um, when you're talking about the problems of Latin America today, it always seems to me that one of the best uh, methods that one can take to make sense of a place that is as heterogeneous as Latin America right now is to think a little bit like Sarmiento and to try to make differences, you know, not just lump maybe all the countries together. So I think in that way, um, 
you know, Sarmiento can be a very good example for thinking about uh, many of these problems and being aware that, you know, Mexico is very different from Argentina, which is mm -hmm. very different from Chile, and just because there are some similarities in the problems that affect one country in another doesn't mean that it's the same or that it's part of the same uh, phenomenon. You know, that is just global. Well, I thank you for that. I mean, I did spend some time speaking about the nuances, the contradictions, the conflicts, how he was in love with his own, and how the best parts of what he writes are precisely those that you are referring to that I can't. I mean, again, this is not a lecture about Sarmiento, but I'm using him because what, what, call, I mean, you know, when you, when you teach Sarmiento today in the university to your own students, or you read him again, what, what draws your attention is, how can it be that the problems that he's describing, not the problems, but the solution that he's describing, seem to echo exactly the same things that are being said by so many governments today? So I wanted to look at the continuity of that and at the same time say, what is the solution? The solution is precisely what you're suggesting, what Sarmiento really is. Because if he were just this dry sociological analysis, you know, the, the civilized over here, the barbarians over there, if he had done that, he would have written something incredibly uninteresting. What is really interesting about him is how, in fact, he is so imbued with the richness and diversity of what he's looking at and describes it, right? He's a great writer in that sense. He writes wonderful prose. And, and the way in which he, he works with all of this is very, very interesting. He's a rastreador himself. He's interested in the scouts. He's a scout. He, he himself sees language in that sense. And the, the forging of that language is what will make Latin America different, right? But it, it's strange. In other words, if you would have asked Sarmiento how the solution is, the solution is technology, civilization, etc. But if you look at his prose, his prose is saying it's the hybridization, it's looking at nuances, it's looking at differences, it's all that. So I'm, I'm looking at him as a contradiction. Though, of course, you know, in, you've got to remember this is not for a Latin American audience. It's, it's for many people who perhaps have heard the word Sarmiento for the first time today. You know, it, it, it may be, very well be for more than half the people present. So I'm trying to use these as ways of going into these problems in a, a more generalized way than I certainly would do if I were to address a, a Latin American audience. This hasn't been translated into Spanish, for instance. <laughs> Thank you, Ariel. Thank you so much.